0: All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Yeah, come inside. Make yourself comfortable. Um, You're all very brave. I uh, certainly appreciate you all coming over. Certainly uh, a little bit of a special affair today, so I'm I'm definitely thankful that you're here and interested in this topic. My name is Bastian Himmeroder. I'm a partner with Mibach Consulting, Um, 10 years with the company right now. And my background is, um, I'm actually German myself, so if my uh, accent hasn't been telling up to this point or my name, um, now you know. So, and I actually also worked in our Frankfurt office in Germany for five years before transitioning to uh, the United States, um, to our Indianapolis office. So when we're talking automation today, and uh, that's the reason I'm telling you about my background, um, every now and then I might also share a little bit of um, insight about differences between automation levels in Europe and, and North America and why those differences are still in place. Um, I'm here with my colleague Kate Rashi. Yeah, Kate is a senior consultant in our office in Indianapolis. We are both working in the engineering pillar. These are the type of projects, warehouse design, production center design within the four walls. Um, we're here with you for the next 45 minutes. Um, we're not a terribly large group, I think, given the circumstances that uh, was a bit expected. So... If I'm too fast, if you have any questions, please feel free to interrupt me at any time. We'll be here afterwards uh, for any discussions you would like to have, and we're also both um, at our booth for the rest of the fair at uh, 80.50, right, right over here. So, what do we want to talk about today? Um, this is a fair that is a lot about automation. And um, when you go around and, and see, the, see the booths and uh, maybe a couple of the other sessions, there is a lot of talk and drive about automation. What we want to do today is um, add a little bit of a different dimension in place and to say, hey, yeah, there are situations where automation makes a lot of sense uh, and definitely circumstances where you should automate and maybe automate a lot. But that's not always the case, and specifically when we go around in North America, there are still a lot of distribution centers, production centers that are not highly automated, and for good reasons. So today we want to look at it a little bit from both angles. What are situations when you actually should automate a lot, but also what are situations where you should maybe be a bit more careful and take things a little slower and maybe keep some manual operations in place? Most of what we're going to do today is pretty practically driven. Um, We are talking about a couple of key arguments about when automation makes sense when it doesn't make sense and then the core of the presentation today is going to be three case studies Um, low automation medium automation and high automation and specifically why we made those decisions with clients super quick just about 30 seconds so you know what our company is actually doing miebach um, consulting is a supply chain consulting company we're specialized in supply chain consulting so we do network studies Kate and I, we both work in our engineering pillar. So Kate and I, we're focusing on warehouse design and production center design. So technology decisions within the four walls, layouting, um, and certainly choosing the right equipment and technology and automation levels. And we have another pillar that is operational excellence. That is basically about making existing operations better, putting continuous improvement um, initiatives in place, installing labor management systems. Important for us is we're a global company. Um, I'm a little bit of an example for that. We have 24 offices worldwide, um, lots of them in Europe, South America, and North America and Asia. And important for this topic today is we're independent, so we own ourselves, we're in the hand of uh, 50 partners, so we don't have a connection with any suppliers, which is why a lot of our projects are about what is actually the right technology, what is the right equipment that our clients need to put into place. Our clients are across all industries that move goods—fast-moving consumer goods, pharma, fashion, um, spare parts. So any any type of industry that moves physically goods is um, is a core industry for us. To frame this a little bit, yeah, um, this is a study from Logistics IQ about how much money is being spent on automation. Yeah, and we see over here that the expectation is to double within the next seven years. I know who's—I uh, saw you three guys over there from Bash. You're uh, setting equipment. Do we have any other suppliers over here? Any equipment vendors? No? All right. Well, you guys should be happy about this diagram. Yeah. Um, I do want to say, though, this was done before Corona. So uh, this was not taking into place that the MODX attendance was dropping by 80%. So we'll see what type of effect that might have to this chart, but hopefully not to too severe. Um, This chart here goes into a little bit more detail about how this splits between different continents and industries. You'll all automatically get an email with the whole deck. I would encourage you to read through this. But for today, I would really kind of go really right in practical and what are situations on maybe starting when automation doesn't make a lot of sense. Any questions up to this point about our background objectives for today? Let's get started. The first aspect that we see problematic for automation, or in other words, a driver of when processes should be rather manual, is a highly seasonal business. High peaks over the course of the year. Why is that the case? Whenever we talk about automation, we're talking about buying AGVs, we're talking about buying cranes, we're talking about buying equipment. And this equipment, you have to have enough to have your strongest day. Of the year covered. It's a big difference than temporary workers, which you can get in for a certain period of time of the year and then release afterwards. You know, specifically, here uh, in North America, you have lots of flexibilities doing this. Automation, that's not so easy. In almost every case, you have to size your automation for your strongest day. And if that strongest day is just so much above the rest of the year, you have a lot of idle capacity, um, which you're paying for and not getting anything out of it. Going into the same into the same direction, um, and this is almost the first aspect we were talking about: difference between different countries and and continents. Great access to labor and low labor rates. One of the core arguments for automation is usually saving labor costs, which is usually only the case or the strongest case if you have very high labor costs or labor is just difficult to get. And in many places, that's the case. And we're actually in a little bit going to talk about a, an example from rural. Midwest um, where this was very much the case Um, But if you're in an area where labor is uh, is not short and readily available It's one argument maybe to be a little bit more cautious with automation The other most typical argument to automate is to reduce space Storing product in a densier way safe picking aisles safe replenishment aisles go taller Yeah with automated storage and retrieval system whether it's this, this for, for pallets or uh, uh, for mini loads. If there is no shortage for land and you have a lot of space available, yeah, this is maybe one argument where Avela, like, l- land savings isn't the most critical one for you. Many of our clients, and this is specifically when we're talking about distribution to the end customer as opposed to production centers, many of our clients are leasing warehouses and distribution centers for five years, seven years. Whenever they do that, there is naturally quite a resistance to say, oh, we're spending $30 million that we're putting into a facility that we might only have for five years. And this $30 million investment is very, very difficult to move. So, lease facilities, I'm not saying it's impossible to install anything over there, but it makes it more difficult to move, move products afterwards as opposed to if you have something in place yourself. Whenever we talk about production sites and kind of the raw material warehouses that are supplying production, um, these are often sites that are owned by our clients where this is not an issue. Low availability of funding, somewhat natural. If there's only so much capex available that we can spend, and this is, uh, this is a cap, then uh, there's only so much we can do. So this is, uh, almost goes by itself. High variability in storage requirements. Whenever we have bulky products, oversized products, yeah, those are more and more difficult to handle by automation. Automation likes standard-sized pellets, standard heights, or small bins. And this also goes, uh, for example, when we talk about spare parts. Anybody from the spare parts industry over here? No spare parts? Okay. Spare parts very often has products that is the size of uh, this USB stick over here up to very, very large oversized products and whenever we look at those projects, the small parts are always the first that gives you the best bang for your bucks when it comes to automating storage and picking. Doesn't mean that we can't do that with bulky, but the smaller and the more standardized, the easier it is and the better the ROIs are at the end of the day. Low volumes, if there's just not so much going on, there is only so much argument to automate things. That also is probably rather straightforward. Strict ROI requirements for investments. That's something that I saw a lot when I moved from Europe to the to North America. In Europe, many of our projects were like five to seven years of ROI is, is acceptable, as good. In North America, things are a little bit different, yeah. And many of our projects have a hard cap. Every dollar we're spending in terms of capital expenditure. Needs to pay back within two to three years. I see just a drone. Sorry for the background noise. I think they're doing some drone testing there in the background. I hope you can still hear me. So let's go back super quick. Any questions to any of these aspects? All right. So we have the same list, and uh, we do. Have these lists over here for handouts. So I would definitely like to ask you um, after after this presentation, come over, grab yourself um, one of the um, uh, one of the handouts over here that has these lists. Um, this list is mostly really the exact counterpart of what we just saw. If we have an operation that is 24-hour operation, 24-hour operation. Three shifts going continuously. That's where you can get an equipment and run it at all times. 20 hours a day, 22 hours a day, low downtime. That's what you really want to get if you buy robots and automation and cranes and all these types of things. Low and controllable peaks. That's both over the course of the year, but also within a day. Yeah. Um, we're later going to see an operation for um, grocery delivery. Yeah. It's one of those uh, operations where you have some short, very intense hours during the day, and the rest of the day is pretty, is, is pretty small, yeah? pretty, pretty, um, pretty, I don't want to say easy-going, that's maybe a bit too informal, but there is a big, big peak within the day. It's very difficult to automate because the rest of the day, machines are going to just idle um, and still cost you money. High and increasing screw complexity is maybe an important aspect over here, why is that the case? Whenever we do automate and we are calculating about how much can we reduce labor cost and increase labor performance, one of the biggest drivers is usually travel and picking. And travel, thank you for <laughs> getting the drone down. Um, how much we travel for picking is usually determined by how many SKUs our pick face is. If I talk about 2,000 SKUs in the pick face, I only have to travel so much. If we're talking 50,000 SKUs in the pick face, I have to travel quite a lot. So very commonly we see the more SKUs we're talking about that need to be accessible, the better the bang for the buck for automation because we can get a lot of travel out of the system. Fast order fulfillment uh, requirements um, and quality requirements are aspects for automation. Limited footprint, we're actually gonna see an example in a little bit uh, where footprint was strictly limited and we needed to densify within that footprint. Good good case for automation. Whenever we build greenfield DCs, as opposed to retrofitting a brownfield DC, the ROIs are usually better, um, as well as when we have a low number of process exceptions in place. From your perspective, do you have any points that you would have expected on the slide? Any arguments from your perspective, from your daily lives about that are calling for very manual or very automated processes? Sorry, see you're thinking, yeah, huh? yeah. All right. Well, let me know if you come up with something. Then let's get into uh, three examples. That's kind of the call for the presentation today. We have case study number one, Brownfield Fashion and Apparel Company, um, which resulted in very high automation. We have a greenfield distribution center for an air and oil filter manufacturer, resulting in medium automation. And then we have a discount grocery wholesaler, a greenfield DC, which we built, uh, which resulted in And I don't want to say no automation, but it's kind of over here, low automation. All right, let's start with our first case over here. This is a work and sportswear um, manufacturer and distributor. They are running for the whole North American market, a single distribution center in the Midwest, 680,000 square feet large, and 500 FTE in a 24-7 operation over three shifts. The share in the initial situation was 75, 76% wholesale, 15% share of e-commerce. The task was, first of all, to double the throughput and to also increase the inventory going with this. To adjust the share, you see over here e-com is growing much, much stronger, which has completely different order structures, much more detail picking, much smaller order quantities than wholesale has. And If that wasn't difficult enough um, This site was in the hands of the family-owned business. They want they were actually very attached to this site So it was given that this site is going to continue to be the single distribution center It's not expandable so we needed to stay within the footprint that we had and It's in very rural areas, so loosely speaking they basically already employed everybody who is there they also had fairly high labor costs. it was a unionized facility or is still a unionized facility um, so it's not about we can pay them more and get more people in there was basically a cap on the people availability so if we think about the list of arguments they were just looking at limited footprint yeah funding was available um, an own facility high labor cost limited labor Lots of arguments for that 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 are there are calling for automation over here. So, what were we doing in this case? This is a uh, in a um, in a natural the initial facility, a U-shaped flow receiving over here lots of reserve storage over here a little bit of pallet racking lots of case racking, manual picking going on over here some conveyance some sortation and outbound. So. We needed to get more inventory into this, and we needed to definitely get a lot of more throughput without increasing the labor. In the first step, we looked at the whole inbound and reserve storage areas. So what did we do? We automated receiving. We started with telescopic conveyors that go into the truck. We're talking about loose unloading here. Strictly cases, nothing pelletized. Very standardized cases that are coming in from overseas. So somebody is basically unloading them onto the telescopic conveyor. From there, it goes into a sortation loop, and the following things happen. It could either be sorted out and we pelletize it if it goes into the pellet VNA rack over here. It could be pelletized if it goes into the carton VNA rack. But a big stream goes into the newly constructed mini-load ASRS over there. This is a fully automated carton-in, carton-out flow. So a big flow of what is actually put on the telescopic conveyor over here is directly going on this new... Conveyance automatically stored in the MiniLoad ASRs without any further touch. We also added a few fingers over here, so whenever anybody's doing case picking, which there was still manual case picking, just much reduced because we had the MiniLoad in place. Whenever anybody's doing case picking over here, the resulting cases, we would drive to the right, put them on the fingers over here, they would automatically go onto this conveyor belt. So that brought in more storage capacity, that reduced the labor on that area for quite a bit, but the biggest thing um, that we needed to do here was go away from manual picking into goods-to-person picking over here. So we implemented a bin shuttle um, that is feeding the goods-to-person stations over here um, and replacing most of the manual picking. There was still a very small A-plus picking area, so the super, super, super fast movers are still being picked manually. That's something that we do in almost every case when we talk about goods to person. If there is a small number of SKUs that are very, very fast moving, we take those out of the automation to save a lot of crane power. So, arguments, limited footprint. Funding was available, they owned the facility, limited staff available. So we did go with a very high amount of automation in the Brownfield facility got the throughput up by 65 percent and the productivity is down by 40 percent. Any questions to this case study? Yeah, please. Really good question. Um, The question is what was the seasonality of this distribution center? Um, I don't recall the exact number but in order to like put it into perspective, there was certainly seasonality, but not in the same fashion as you would see for like a pure sportswear company like the, uh, uh, the, the Pumas or Adidas yeah, to, to call out a few other Nikes. yeah. So yes, most of what they were doing was workwear. So that already is a little bit more flattened, but it has certainly seasonality when we're talking about kind of going into summer when people are going outdoors, making projects. Um, they do certainly also have the e-com aspect going on so there is a Black Friday aspect to it But it was a much slower peak uh, much lower peak than uh, uh, than like the typical 200 percent that we see in other in other apparel companies fantastic question There was actually one of also one of the big drivers that made this happen Yeah, if it was a much higher peak We would have either not been able to do that or we would have had to think well Maybe during three weeks a year we need to do something extra in another facility or something like this great question Thank you any others? Alright, let's go into the next case study, air and oil filter manufacturer, we're talking about a distribution center over here. This distribution center was built in the 90s, we're talking about 20 something thousand SKUs lots of case picking going on almost everything case picking almost no full pallet picking and small amount of each is picking going on out of the cases the vast majority of the distribution center was built in exactly this way we see the pick tunnels on two levels pallets being fed from replenishment this is the pick aisle with a belt in the middle does that look familiar to anybody I'm sure the best guys probably have seen that sometimes before yeah um, So a ton of belts here, every pickout has a belt in the middle, and they all end up in a big sortation system in the outbound area with pelletization at the end of the day. In the 90s, that's how distribution centers for this type were built. That's how case picking with high throughputs and good amount of SKUs were built in the 90s. And at that time, that was state of the art. It's not state-of-the-art in, uh, in, in the 2020s anymore. And we'll see in a little bit of what we did with this. Uh, with this. Um, what I probably didn't mention, the task over here, they were heavily outgrowing the distribution center. So the task was to design a greenfield new distribution center with higher inventory and throughput requirements. So, maybe one aspect I also need to call out a little bit more. Um, they were outgrowing it, but also one of the biggest issues over here was ergonomics. Air and oil filters, uh, air filters not so much, but oil filters can be heavy, and everything they picked was either picked from here, yeah, partially from the back of the pallet, so I had to like, move this, do this awkward move so here like I'm trying to imitate right now, or I had to pick it from the upper level, and both are kind of not very good, specifically with this beam over here, um, it's also a safety, a safety hazard. Yeah? Um, so these were also areas where the client told us, this is not going to happen in our new distribution center. This is not fulfilling our own ergonomic and safety standards any longer. So we did what Miebach Consulting is, uh, is good at. We created alternatives and designed them and calculated them and, uh, and saw what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. In a nutshell, we started with, all right, what is going to happen if we build a traditional ASRS, pellet ASRS system? Like we see everywhere over here, yeah, everybody has them pretty Established technology and we do goods to person system where the pellet is being brought to a pick station and then move move back Pretty low labor requirements. Yeah, very highly automated But intensively high investments because there was so much case picking going on So we needed a an army of cranes of pellet cranes to bring all these pellets to pick stations and back so that was not gonna fly We always looked at the current solution. This is something we always do We always need a baseline. What if you rebuild what you're currently doing, just larger? We already knew that that's not going to happen at the end of the day, but we needed to quantify it, right? Um, We also improved the current solution. So what we're doing over here is the biggest problem was this picking from two levels. So we eliminated that, said we're only picking from one level. And in order to not double the footprint, we said a lot of the articles that are all on pellets, we can transition a lot of them in case flow racks to really densify the, the pick phase. So we designed it that way. That increased the labor, yeah, because I now had a replenishment process into case flow. But it really brought the invest down, because the invest was so much driven by space and by all the Bells that we need to take in place. But it kind of didn't fulfill what we actually wanted to do, is to be more efficient here. right? We also looked at a completely manual process to benchmark that, to really look at end, all ends. Yeah? Manual picking from pellets to pellets with the help of follow me pickers. Yeah, so we had that in the equation as well, but um, that didn't only result in uh, in uh, labor requirements that were too high, but also in a facility that was too large. All right, nothing really yet satisfying. Yeah, so no problem. We just need more alternatives. Yeah, um, so what we're doing next is we were uh, we were trying what what if what happens if we separate fast movers and slow movers? Can we do something in this regards? Yeah, and. Is what it was becoming more attractive. Yeah? So, solutions that we are creating over here were slow movers in the ASRS, fast movers maybe picked manually. We were coming into this direction. This is where we want to be, right? Low labor requirements, low investment. So, we were getting into this area, um, but not really to a satisfying degree. And also, everything we did when the moment we separated fast and slow movers is we brought a consolidation, auto consolidation process into our facility. Auto consolidation is never fun. Sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's required, but whenever we can avoid it, we want to avoid it. So eventually, what we designed was a, was a fairly new technology at, at that time, yeah? a few few years ago. Um, was the carry pick? Who has heard of the carry pick? Or maybe seen it at the fair over here? Okay, not too many people. Then maybe let me go to the next slide. So what we designed for them was this solution where we store the product either on pallets or on shelves. That kind of depends whether it's a fast mover or a slow mover, or there are also a couple of items where we needed to do each picking. And these products, we store them on the ground. I'm not really on the ground, we kind of need kind of this, this rack over here so that a robot can drive underneath it, lift it, and bring it to a good superson station. So the labor requirements are somewhat similar to a pure goods-to-person system, right? Because we do 100% goods-to-person over here, and the person that's picking doesn't really care about how the pellet actually makes it there, right? Um, But the difference is, implementing these robots brings the capex down so much compared to the traditional ASRS racking and cranes that this became a good business case. The downside, you see that very well on this picture, the space requirements and that was a big downside of this of this alternative and that's also one of these projects where again we learn you can't have it all, but in this case we said all right, we're eating the higher space requirements that are coming with this solution to bring the invest down by a lot. The other good aspect that was helping us with our labor so much with this alternative we calculated you can do all fast movers, all slow movers And you can also do case picking and each picking out of the same system because, and I might not have mentioned that earlier, their customers wanted to have case picking and each picking all on one pellet in one order. So with all the other alternatives, we would have to have, again, this consolidation system at the end of the day, which here I can do this all-in-one goods-to-person system. Hasn't been implemented so often. This is one of the first sites where this is going to be implemented to do these two things with carry pick on one pick station. This is also a technology in our projects where we see good return on invests fairly often. Not necessarily the two years return on invests, but when we compare this to the traditional shuttles um, or the traditional ASRs, this is really an invention that will make a difference in warehouses in the United States. Any questions to the case study, to the technology, to the drivers. Yeah, sir, please. Mm -hmm. Good question, yes. Though the question was, um, uh, Bastian, you said personal safety was a concern before. Did you really improve it afterwards? Let's quickly review what the biggest concern was over here. Yeah. The biggest concern was picking from a high level. Yeah? So we eliminated that. So they kind of helped themselves with kind of with a stick reaching or like maybe stepping on the lower pellet. That was the biggest concern. There was also the concern with like hitting your head over here on this beam and going underneath this. Yeah. This was the biggest concern that that was eliminated. And what we also did in the, um, I don't think we have a picture for this, yeah, but at the picking station to increase the ergonomics also, you can lift the pellet or lower the pellet. So when I'm picking from a very full level, full pellet, I can basically like not, I can basically kind of almost ensure that I'm always picking from hip level. If the pellet is almost empty, it can be lifted a little bit more. So from an ergonomic standpoint, we did a lot in this regard. Yeah, of course. From a safety aspect also in this case this is also a solution where there is basically there is either a robot or there is a person You don't have persons running around where the robots are driving if that was one of your concerns where the question was heading All right, let's go into the last case study. We're talking about a discount grocery chain That was about to open a new Greenfield distribution center for 200 stores it's a common rather large size for for this type of industry. Do we have any grocers here? No grocers, okay um, The amount of SKUs that we are talking here is about 2000 ish, we're not talking about the Walmart's or the Kroger's or the Myers, Yeah those Massive megastores. We're talking about discount grocery low amount of SKU's we're talking about Leasing a facility And we are talking about very strict capital requirements. Also caused by the ownership style um, type of of the kind at that time, yeah, in in hedge fund control. Um, So very strict ROI requirements. This is how we started the project. So let's kind of overlap that with the arguments that we had before for automation and manual. These are three very critical arguments to rather go into the manual area. So we did do an automation study over here um, to do our due diligence. We essentially checked, can we automate storage within the conventional leased warehouse? So we cannot go 40 meter, 30 meter high or 100 feet high because we're talking about leasing a facility over here. So we're in the standard 36-something feet facility. So, we're investigating can we implement a deep storage ASRS to really bring the footprint down and feed goods to person stations with this? And we were, but with a 15 year payback. So, that was completely out of reach for anything that would have been feasible, feasible um, from a business perspective. Also, what has to be said over here one of the main aspects over the year, we weren't really able to bring labor down so much in this case because. In the warehouses that they were running, and also in the warehouses that we designed, they were picking super fast. They were only picking from 2,000 SKUs, and they had performances that were above 200 cases an hour. So, going automated, you can only increase that by so much, but still throwing a lot of capex into it. So, because we were already on such a high performance in manual processes, We weren't bringing it we weren't just able to bring it up so much further. Yeah, so when we talk about automation it also heavily depends on like how bad is your initial situation to begin with yeah, and how what's what are your performance in a good manual baseline? We're still able to do some things. Yeah, so we implemented um, the AGVs that are following the picker so because we're talking basically when they were picking they were Walking 10 feet, going behind the machine, driving to the next one, getting off again, walking 10 feet. So well, there's a lot of stop and go, and this we wanted to take out of the system. Yeah? So we brought in AGVs that are automatically directly next to the picker at all times. We improved the outbound staging, first of all, by right-sizing. Yeah? That's a topic that we didn't necessarily get into too much today. Yeah? <laughs> What's the right size of, uh, of your staging? Probably it's bigger than it is right now. So that's what we did over here. We implemented some semi-automation for the pallet wrapping. So simple things that we can implement over here. And we're able to bring down the, um, where do we have it over here? Or we were able to bring up the performances by 6% by these measures while still staying in a very manual operation. And in this case, a manual operation was the right thing for this client. You know? So everything we're hearing in terms of fancy shuttles, robots, just didn't apply for this client. There's no ROI, no business case for this. And those warehouses still exist specifically here in the United States. Any questions to this case study? All right. Then we have about 10 minutes left. Let me spend two minutes about how we approach those projects and then eight minutes to, uh, to an open question and answer. So when we do these projects with our clients, we do it in three steps. The first step is... Identifying and learning the business of the client. Yeah, this is about learning. Yeah, what are the throughputs requirements? What are inventory requirements, but also a lot about like where does our client fit in these arguments for automation and uh, and manual processes? So usually when we do these projects the first months Kate and I we're spending and our colleagues obviously um, spending understanding our clients business before we go into the fun phase, this is what we saw with this diagram over there for the second, uh, for the second case study. What are the different alternatives? Yeah? What are they in terms of size, layouting, costs, labor requirements? Before we finally put the solution together, do the final business case, do the final layout, um, do the final implementation roadmap, and CapEx and OpEx requirements. So typically those projects most often about eight to fifteen weeks, depending on the complexity of our clients, so Kate, did I miss anything from your perspective? Um, this was about as much as we wanted to give to you in terms of uh, of front load. Um, we have a few minutes left, so let's let 's open it up. Um, do you have any questions, comments, examples from your own experience that you would share with the Ottomans? Any, anybody who would like to share anything, yeah. sir. So the question was. Thank you for the question. The question was, did we meet the ROI? Remember, the first one was a very difficult one because we had all these this, restri- this this restrictions in place. What we did in that case is we were sign sort of saying. What if these restrictions were not in place? What if you could just hire more people that aren't even there, but what if you could do this, and what if you could expand your facility? In this case, we're, we're reaching about a seven-year ROI, but with the caveat, it's the baseline is not really feasible, right? So it was basically, you either do it this way or no way. Yeah? Um, for the other ones, it was much easier. Yeah? So um, for, the, uh, for the second one, we were in the area of three years ROI, and for the third one, we did it very manual, right? So for these small implementations for like the AMRs so or the stretch rippers, oh yeah, we got an immediate ROI for those, but we only got the performances up by 6%, not by 45%. So it's, it's very, it's, it really has to be like looked at from case by case. It's difficult to say every project always has to do the three year ROI. If you have these restrictions in place, and you still wanna make your business up and running and reach 65% performance increase, sometimes you have to live with a longer ROI to make this happen. Sir, please. So uh, I was wondering about the energy intensity that goes into your modeling when it comes to automation with the robots and, and how that factors into investment and ongoing operation. Thank you for the question. Uh, if I think I understood it correctly, you were asking about energy costs. Do we factor this in? Yes, we do. And I would actually like to add to this. It's not only energy, it's also maintenance and repair. Um, that very often is even like, more important than the energy parts. Yes, we do always need to factor that in. I didn't talk about this too much today. Granted, and very thankful that you actually bring it up. I kind of concentrated a lot on labor and land, which are the biggest aspects. But you're absolutely right. If we bring basically land and labor down on the one hand, but bring maintenance and energy up on the other hand, we gotta, we got to factor that in. That's absolutely correct. Sir, please. Sorry, the drone is, is going on. Mm-hmm. Thank you. The question was, what is the difficulty of learning these, these, systems on a day-to-day basis. When we change systems, it's difficult to really, really answer that in, in one or two in one or two uh, sentences. Yeah, um, it's obviously the case whenever we change things. There is a training curve at the beginning. Yeah, and the um, in the very first case study that we had, that was heavily automating inside a running operation. Really going from many many very manual aspects to so very automated aspects, and we also br- needed to bring like a completely new type of function in, which was kind of the director of the automation. Right? Um, so there was a huge learning curve for the workwear and apparel um, facility to make that happen. Some other areas, like bringing in a strat wrapper, that's not so difficult. Yeah, but um, it's, it's difficult. It's really kind of a case-by-case. Some of these aspects are huge change management projects, and the first case study certainly was. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I hope this was interesting for you, and, and you learned a little bit, and, and was uh, hope you were able to get some of these um, some of these examples and have some takeaways for your uh, for your daily life. Um, Kate and I were at the booth. We're also probably just in front of the um, on a f- in front of the room for, for a few more moments. So please stop us and uh, and let's have a coffee and let's have a chat and. Um, if we don't see each other I hope you have a great wonderful rest of the trade fair and safe travels home